Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work done by the researchers, we catch up with them to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Daiva, and this time I am joined by my co-host, Shruti. Hello, listeners. Today we have with us Professor Alan Deidun, who's going to be speaking to us about microplastics. Sir, would you like to introduce your topic? Yes, uh, thank you for the invitation. I'll be speaking about microplastics in general. What are microplastics? How do microplastics end up in the marine environment? And most importantly, what the impacts of microplastics are on the general marine ecosystem, but also on human health. Very good. So I guess we have more awareness uh, than that time when you're article first came out in the Think magazine and you mentioned the efforts to categorize microplastics. So where has this taken you since then? Basically, microplastics nowadays, we have shifted our focus. Initially, the focus on microplastics was to actually identify them, detect them. Okay, so detection is already a feat in itself. Because when we speak of microplastics, we're speaking of something which is smaller than five millimeters, down to 10 nanometers. And the even that we're pushing the barrier, even the 10 nanometer, some researchers are pushing the barrier even lower to one nanometer. So uh, when we speak of microplastics, it's a loose category, it's a loose definition. Basically, there's a consensus about the bigger size, the five millimeter, but there isn't a consensus about the smaller size. Because as analytical techniques advance, so as our techniques, you know, to actually study these microplastics become more and more advanced, we push the lower limit lower and lower and lower. So first we started off with microscopy, things like advanced microscopy, so scanning electron microscopy and transmission electron microscopy. But now we're pushing, we're using other stuff, more and more things like Raman spectroscopy, for example, and Fourier transform and so on and so forth. Now, not only detect the microplastic to know that it's actually there and to see the abundance of how many there is, but also to try to see the composition. So since the article appeared, we're obviously experimenting with Raman spectroscopy, especially with, this is the big advantage, the the big improvement, if you want, the portable type, you know, because Raman spectroscopes normally are bulky stuff, bulky things, bulky animals will stay put in a, a lab, and therefore you have limited time to actually go there, you have to visit the, the lab with your samples, so there's the traveling time between the sampling, whilst nowadays we have access to these portable Raman spectroscopes, which we can obviously take in the field and so on. Something else, in fact, we, and this happened recently, the University of Malta managed to get itself within a a project which has just been financed by the EU through a funding mechanism known as JPI Oceans. JPI Oceans is a form of joint programming where member states, if they wish to participate within it, they have to vote money themselves. And Malta voted actually money in this. So for Malta, plastics are actually a priority, which is good. And we are within this winning consortium, winning project called Adromeda. So through this project, we will have funds. We have funds to actually purchase more hardware to look more and more into this composition thing which we have just started off now, you know, so hopefully in the next podcast or in the next Think Magazine article where we'll visit this topic again, we'll have a much more, you know, detailed update about this. 
Could you tell us a little more about the research that you've done with respect to Malta and the beaches in Malta? Yes. So beaches are an interesting place, not just for the sun and the fun and everything, okay, that comes as a given, but also because they are an interface between obviously the terrestrial component and the marine aquatic one. So they tend to be hotspots of pollution, of all sorts of pollution, because they tend to accumulate a lot of pollutants which are in transition, either coming from from the sea to land or doing the opposite, you know, a trajectory from land going to the sea. So they are a transition zone which gets a lot of stuff, you know, being transported across them. And sometimes that stuff, that pollutant, ends up on the beach and stays there. It accumulates or sometimes it's just as a way of passage. What we did was, even through a master's students, a master's project, research project, which we had over the course of one year, we looked basically at different beaches on the Maltese islands. We had beaches, and these beaches, the way they were chosen, they represent different typologies of beaches. So we had an urban beach, like, for example, Pretty Bay, which is in Birzabuja, in an area which is, you know, highly residential and so on. And even you have a, an industrial port, free port close by. You have Adira, which is heavily touristic, and... Uh, it points towards the northeast, so even the aspect of the beach is important. And you had two beaches on the other side of the island, facing the northwest, Golden Bay and Daintofiha. And basically, the student took course of sand along different transects on every beach at different distances from the sea, and also took vertical profiles. So even took course not only at different distances from mean sea level, but also at different heights in the sand column. And he saved the sand on site, and he extracted the microplastics on site to see how much, actually, microplastics there is. What he did as well, so he did this regularly every month, but then he also did it, he did what is known as phenomenology. So he studied phenomena. When there was a heavy storm, a big storm, heavy rainfall, he went the day after, you know, and he studied also the amount of microplastics which accumulated at the back of the beach. Normally, in Malta, we have beaches at the mouth of valleys. So behind every beach, there's a valley. So there's a lot of runoff in the wet season, in the rainy season. We get a lot of runoff from land reaching the beach, normally traversing the beach and ending up into the sea. And he found out that after heavy rainfall, there is a spike in the amount of microplastics at the back of the beach. So this sort of taught us to revisit our paradigm where we thought that microplastics were coming on land, reaching beaches only from the sea, from seaborne sources. But now we know that besides that route, there's also the terrestrial one. So that was part of our research, but we also went into the dynamics of the beach. So we released colored microplastics into the sea, the same microplastics which the student had isolated from the beach. So we didn't add new microplastics you know, to the sea. And we basically, through cameras and so on, we saw how these microplastic particles disseminated, spread around into the sea after reaching the beach from land. And this is probably something that many people are waiting to hear from you. So to what extent land-to-sea activity is contributing to the proliferation of microplastics? So to what extent are we responsible as uh, consumers, as tourists, or anybody who is visiting the beach? This is a good question. Generally, on a global scale, the average balance between terrestrial and marine in terms of sources of plastics and microplastics, you know, in general, is about 80 to 20, 70, 30 in, the, in that sort of, you know, so 
uh, basically one fourth around one fourth of the plastics which we find on beaches or in the sea itself originates from sea-based sources and about three quarters originates from land and in fact plastic is not meant to be in the sea and human activity human economic activity is currently just based on land okay through blue growth strategy and so on we're trying to push further economic activity out at sea so our research you know confirms this that most of the plastic comes from land but we had never thought of this you know and through this perspective we normally thought of the plastic as macro plastic the big sheets of plastic coming from plastic bags i don't know plastic bottles caps blah 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 being simply discarded on land, either on the coast after a barbecue or when people go to the beach, blah, 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 or further inland, and they simply get blown by the sea, you know, or simply by the wind, or they find themselves... But we always thought about the macro stuff, the big stuff. But now, through our research, we also showed that you could have the microplastics, which are on land because as a result of the fragmentation of the big chunks of plastic through you. V, through any form of physical and chemical attrition, which broke down these big chunks into smaller chunks. And through these temporary streams, because in Malta we have these temporary streams in the form of runoff after heavy rainfall, you know, they end up on the beach. Uh, so it's not just the plastic that we see, but it's also the invisible plastic, which is moving from one compartment to the other. There is some uh, microplastic in uh, fabrics, for example. Of course, and then there is, yes, this is something which has never been actually researched locally, but obviously in the Mediterranean, on the European scale, even globally. There's a bigger volume of literature on this, which is the sewage treatment plants, for instance, you know, whereby every time, obviously, we wash our clothes through laundries and so on, there's a lot of textile fabrics ending up into, and most of the sewage treatment plants around the world, if not all, are not equipped currently to will intercept, block these textile fabrics. So when speaking of litter, it's much wider than just uh, synthetic polymers that are plastics, because there are other synthetic polymers that are used a lot in, like nylon, for example. Nowadays, there's a lot of nylon in our clothes. And then there's a lot of nylon, for example, in fishing gear. Nylon rope is extremely popular with fishermen, and you don't blame them because it is cheap, it is strong, uh, very tough, and it's easy to find, it's easy to transport. So it's very difficult to find an alternative, because we have to look at alternatives, obviously, when we speak about the management aspects. And there's a lot of nylon on the seabed from, for example, at the end of the Lampuki fishing season, which starts in August every year, and it extends till the end of the year, basically. And at the end of that fishing season, what they do is they cut off the floats, the fishing aggregating devices, which consist of these pieces of jablo to which there you have palm leaves attached, and they are anchored to the seabed through long nylon ropes. And at the end of the fishing season, those are cut off and the nylon ends up even at hundreds and sometimes even thousands of meters, as we know from ROV footage and so on. So you cannot get away from litter. It has invaded all compartments, basically, land, coastal and even marine. And when we think about hygiene products as well... Yes, and especially there's a lot of plastic. We don't think about this. A lot of microplastics in cosmetics. And when you make people aware of this thing, even in tap water, there was this statistic coming out, which made people, you know, quite stunned people, literally, where it said that we're consuming on average about 2000 milligrams, which is two, two grams of plastic on a weekly basis. So that is the equivalent of the amount of plastic in a credit card. And most of that, which is 
I think 90% comes from the water we drink. Most of it from bottled water and from tap water. But if you drink simply, and this is what happens in Malta, because people still have misgivings about using tap water to drink directly from the tap, even though it seems that it's completely safe. This has historical roots, because in the past, tap water wasn't always safe in Malta. So this has been inherited, this perception, and people now, they still are quite hesitant to use tap water. But if you rely solely on bottled water, your exposure to microplastics is higher than people who drink tap water. So 90% comes from that. The remaining 10% comes from consuming shellfish. And the reason is that shellfish compared with fish, shellfish, you eat the entire organism. You eat even the digestive gland, where the shellfish, so we're speaking bivalves, oysters, scallops, you know, whatever, would have accumulated the microplastic in the digestive gland. So you'd be eating everything, you know. And there's also a small percentage, for example, from other forms, for example, from beer and so on and so forth. So that made people think that this is no longer something which is affecting other organisms, the ecosystem in general, but affecting our human health. And there was also the study last year where they found the first evidence of microplastics in human stools, in excrete and so on. So microplastics are no longer in the environment, just in the physical environment out there. They're also in our system. There's no escaping them. Exactly. Let's hear the article which appeared in the 25th issue of Think in September 2018. The P Factor by Adam Gauchi. In the challenge of keeping our seas clean, plastics fail. And yet, during the last decade, we produced more of it than in the last hundred years combined. Dr. Adam Gauchi writes about his team's effort to categorize the plastics from Malta's beaches and how those efforts will contribute towards the war on plastics. Plastic is convenient, it's cheap, it's versatile, and it's useful. The trouble is that it never goes away. While plastic is recyclable, and can be reused in the form of lesser quality plastics, it can never be completely eliminated. Instead, it breaks down into smaller and smaller fragments, called microplastics, that stay in the sea. The only way they are ever removed is if a fish eats them. Coloured ones look especially tasty. Or if they enter some orifice of ours while we're enjoying our summer sun on the beach. Next time you're sunbathing, sift your hand through the first five centimetres of sand and count all the small, smooth, rounded plastic fragments you pick up. That's the stuff we're talking about. A whole movement has started to take shape in recent years, raising awareness about the damage plastics are causing. If you've never received a Facebook invite to join a cleanup campaign, you're following the wrong friends. However, there are so many questions that still need answers. What's the source of these fragments? The land or the sea? Are there more fragments closer to the waterline? At which depth in the sand and water will you stop finding them? What can their number, size, shape and colour tell us about the way they move through the environment? All this informs our understanding of microplastics. With this information, we can identify whether their prevalence increases or decreases on a seasonal or yearly basis. It also helps target campaigns, since some areas need cleaning more urgently than others. Characterization of plastics is an important first step in this journey. We need to extract and define parameters for microplastics found within specific volumes of sand and from specific beaches. Needless to say, the going is slow. So far, there is no universal methodology researchers follow for analysing and isolating microplastics. When classifying pieces of plastic based on colour, something as simple as lighting can affect the results. 
Subjectivity also plays a big role. What appears red to one person can be pink to another. There is a high bias from the interpretation of human observers, which needs to be resolved. Reducing human bias is where computers and imaging processing techniques come in. Using cameras, we can capture high-resolution images of the particles and submit them to computers, which run image processing techniques to automatically characterize the pieces of plastic. Not only does this save time, it removes subjectivity, allowing us to make accurate spatial and temporal comparisons. Our shovels, sieves, hats and flip-flops were out from August to November. We collected samples from Riviera Bay, Golden Bay, Ardera Bay and Pretty Bay. Apart from being our favourite beaches, these locations also cover the four corners of Malta. They are exposed to winds and waves from different directions, which means we can correlate the different numbers of extracted microplastics to the weather and sea conditions before and on the day of the fieldwork to determine how natural phenomena affect the concentration of microplastics. We visited each beach eight times. At every location, we sampled six different stations by sifting a consistent volume of sand to extract microplastics from the debris. We recorded GPS coordinates to ensure that the data was collected from the exact same spot each time. And Sue learnt that asking tourists to reposition their sunburnt selves out of the way is really uncomfortable. Asking a local, even more so. A few awkward encounters later, we shifted our sampling schedule to very early in the morning before the swimmers arrived and prior to beach cleaning by the authorities. As it stands, what we know is the most polluted beaches are Riviera and Golden Bay. In the lab, a calcium chloride-based solution helps us separate the microplastics from the other debris. Once dry, we can scan the samples at a high resolution. Following hours of coding, we created an algorithm that could run on all the data collected. We designed the program to automatically generate charts for our interpretation. The implemented software is about as intelligent as a three-year-old. An adapted thresholding method gives us a binary image. Morphological methods then fill in the gaps to create a solid image. The program basically mimics human paint by numbers. The second step is like a connect the dots exercise. Identifying and drawing outlines around each particle, the algorithm builds a mathematical model of each microplastic particle, from which it can compute roughness as well as the length of its major and minor axes. The red, green and blue intensities of the pixels enclosed within each boundary are compared against the table and the colour determined. We already know that the algorithm performs very well compared to the output emerging from human observation, but a more comprehensive validation process is underway. As it stands, what we know now is the most polluted beaches are Riviera and Golden Bay. Both have a northwest aspect, which matches the direction of prevailing winds reaching the Maltese Islands. Preliminary results suggest that high microplastic counts in these locations could be due to being exposed to a lot of wind and wave action. However, contribution from human visitors cannot be discounted. The result clearly indicates that 66.63% of the isolated particles, that is, a total of 7,133 microplastic fragments, are smooth, either grey or white. This might mean that most of the plastics collected from the four beaches are pre-production pellets, Nurdles which have not yet been moulded into a plastic item. These pellets are occasionally lost from the industrial facilities during the production process, or from carriers during transit, and are highly mobile given their small size, easily transported from land into the sea. As a team, we are on a journey that will serve to quantify Malta's microplastic problem, as well as highlight how dangerous and widespread microplastics are. This study adds to the movement 
attempting to claw us out of the hole we've dug ourselves into and reverse the damage plastics have been wreaking on our unnatural habitat for the last decade. We hope that next time you're on the beach, running your fingers through the sand, and inevitably the microplastics within it, you will also remember your role in all of this. At that point, ask yourself, what will my contribution be? There is no fairy tale behind the setting up of the team. People with different backgrounds, research interests, and alleged superpowers got together to improve the way we measure microplastics. Dr. Adam Gouji from the Physical Oceanography Research Group discussed the topic with John Montebello of the Institute of Earth Systems. Professor Alan Daydoon was roped in because of his previous experience on similar projects some months before. Dr. John Abella from the Department of Computer Information Systems helped with the development of the algorithm. Professor Victor Asher from the Biology Department was also involved for his long-standing work on the same thematic. The inclusion of Professor Francois Galgani was sacrosanct in view of his research profile on microplastics. The article was read by Chris Stiles. Welcome back, listeners. We're with Professor Alan Deydun, and we're talking about microplastics. I'm Shruti Sundaresan, and I'm here with Daiva. The next question that we have for you, sir, is the article mentioned something about the northwest aspect that's common to both the Golden Bay and the Riviera Bay, which have been found to be the most polluted uh, two mm-hmm. beaches in Malta. So can you tell our listeners a little more about the northwest aspect? This is a very good point because some of the listeners might know the prevailing wind in the Maltese Islands is the northwest, the Maestral. Last year in uh, autumn uh, 2019, we had uh, strong mistral winds, especially in mid-December of last year. So uh, it's not because we say it's the prevailing wind, not because it's the strongest, because it's, it blows the most frequently. So when you have a beach, in this case two beaches, Golden Bay and Dintofia, which are uh, very close to each other, which have a northwestern aspect, we consider them as being the most exposed okay, to wave action. So that might explain... Partly, at least, why, for instance, a beach like Aintofiha of the four sampled beaches resulted to be the most polluted. Because that was quite a surprise to many, you know, who were following this publication saying, you know, Aintofiha is perhaps the least impacted from all the four beaches, at least uh, to the untrained eye. Because there's very little catering establishments on site, you know, there's no residential development on site. It's quite a unspoiled beach, you know. So, But here we're speaking about microplastics, as I said, is a very dynamic thing and it can easily cross from one compartment to another. One of the reasons might have been also for this result that Eintofia has very done besides the exposure is the profile is the topography. Uh, You have a steep slope at the back of the beach and therefore where you have a heavy rainfall There's a lot of rainfall received by the beach in a very narrow area. So we have a narrow accumulation area. Whilst for other beaches, you have a sort of much larger catchment area, which comes from much further inland. So the microplastics, some of the microplastics or a large chunk of them might not make it to the beach because they stop well before the beach, you know. Whilst here you have a steep profile and the beach receives a lot of water in the uh, back end, so to speak, you know. So that might have been another reason. So 
when you have an unspoiled beach in the sense that there's very little human activity on it, it does not necessarily mean that that beach is the cleanest in terms of microplastics. Okay. In fact, a few years back, I think there was also an incident when there was a massive storm and a lot of microplastics and small plastic pellets appeared on the same beach on Aintofiha from the seaward side. You know, so plastic pollution in general, litter pollution and so on, is indiscriminate when it comes to, you know, if it's a beach which is frequented a lot of by humans and so on and so forth. So what we throw into the environment, and I think this is the take-home message, might end up into an area which is relatively pristine, which is relatively unspoiled and so on. So there is no protection against that sort of pollution, unfortunately, you know. And uh, how has it been for you to develop this algorithm that tries to map them and track them down? Yes, this is quite an interesting thing because nowadays artificial intelligence in the form of image analysis is being applied to many different sectors. So basically what is done is that you, from an image, okay, it could also be video footage, but especially for an image, you develop this mathematical algorithm, which is a sort of code, complicated code, okay, but it's, uh, let's keep it simple, let's say it's a code, okay, which is normally written in some of the most commonly used languages, things like MATLAB and so on, you know, whereby when you submit the photo, you take a photo, in this case microplastics, the photo must be quite a good photo, in the sense that you put the microplastics against a clear background, for instance, so as not to confuse, you know, the digital eye, the algorithm, okay? And the algorithm basically extracts a lot of information from that photo and tells you how big the microplastic is, you know, how rough it is, the color, and so on. And you might say, why do we need to know how rough it is? Because that gives you an idea of how much the microplastic has been in the ocean, and so on and so on. And the color also tells you about the origin, where the microplastic originated from. So can we expect to be part of some citizen science projects on microplastics? Yes, our, our plan is to incorporate this in some sort of smartphone app, which would be then openly accessed to the wider public, you know, and then to citizen science, as you rightly mentioned. And our aim is to incorporate it in this JPI Oceans project that the University of Malta now forms part of. And in fact, the other partners in the project are looking forward to us implementing this in the future. So hopefully we'll have a new smartphone app, which makes this widely available to the public in general. We're looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. That was all from Rethink for today. Tell us what you think about this episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUniMalta on Twitter, or ThinkUni on Instagram. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts are Daiva Rapachkaita. And I'm Shruti Sundaresan. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now.